Hey everyone, welcome back to my channel. Now, Mr. Daniel Priestley, it's firstly, I just want to say it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. I am going to pick your brains. I've got a lot of questions for myself, but also there's going to be loads of value. So I just want to throw this out to the audience who we're going to watch. We're going to talk about money, running businesses, 21st century social leverage, the possibility, let's get rid of imposter syndrome and loads of other good stuff. But I'm going to throw it at you. If we could have that 30 second overview, which you've probably done a million times, but please tell everyone who you are, what you do. Yeah, I'm Daniel Priestley. I'm the founder and the CEO of Dent Global. We're an entrepreneur accelerator, uh, and we've worked with about four and a half thousand companies to scale up over the last 12 years. Um, I'm also the co-founder and um, chairperson of a business called ScoreApp, and it's a tech company, very fast growth tech company. We just won Scale Up Entrepreneurs of the Year um, for the Great British Entrepreneur Awards, uh, and that is a tech company focused on lead generation for small businesses. So we actually work with a lot of uh, businesses to really ramp up their leads using quizzes and assessments um, uh, so that they can collect a lot of great quality data, segment their list, and pick high quality clients. Awesome. Well, what I want to achieve in this podcast and go through is I really want to offer people that that realism behind the opportunity of the day and age that we live in. Because as we were saying off camera, I think we're in a day and age at the moment where people might be on the fence thinking about starting something, but there's still a lot of self-doubt. So if we start with that, one thing that I come into a lot is uh, there's a lack of belief. And I truly believe that is uh, predominantly from who you surround yourself with and who whispers in your ear and who you listen to. Let's just kick it off with then your opinions, advice, experiences of the social circle being a very important part to really uh, getting into business, changing your life, whether that be personally, mm. professionally or financially, the social circle. Yeah, let's talk about, I, I really believe that environment dictates performance, that whatever environment you are in, you're going to perform as that environment says you should. So for example, when I was in my early 20s, uh, I'd never done any dancing. And one time I uh, was out at a bar and I saw these people dancing and I, I got talking to them. I got dragged along to dance classes thinking, God, I'm never going to do this and I'm going to embarrass myself. And in the dancing class, it's the most normal thing in the world to be dancing with someone, right? So it was uh, Latin jive dancing, really like partner dancing. And by the end of lesson one, I'm doing things that I never thought I could possibly do. And it's also the most normal and natural thing in the world to just be following the moves and like people coming around dancing with different people. And in that environment, it's easy to do that. And outside of that environment, it would be really strange and weird. So I realized this idea called environment dictates performance. Another example would be I dropped out of university at 19. In the university environment, everyone was broke. Uh, everyone was like, like, I was a Pizza Hut delivery driver, a McDonald's employee. I was um, uh, door knocking for a roof insulation company, like four or five different jobs. I was a bar person on a Friday night and Saturday night, plus I was running my own nightclub parties. I, I was doing all that just to survive. And then at age 20, I dropped out and I joined a startup and I got a mentor who was a multi, multi-millionaire. He was starting his next company. Um, I was employee number three and we just went straight to six million of revenue and, I, and we hired a team of 60 people um, and I started earning $12,000 a month as a salesperson. Um, and in that environment, it was completely normal to do that. It was normal to be mentored. It was normal to learn lessons. It was normal to be earning lots of money. Um, so it was very strange to go from like in one year to go from 1500 a month is normal to yeah. 12,000 a month is normal. Yeah. So I think we respond a lot to the environment that we're placed in. Yeah. And I, I think it's so important that we keep talking about this because I would say that, uh, you know, through my live streams, through my content, I do see a lot of self-doubt where, you know, people aren't really looking at their social circles and, and they have this limited belief that obtaining money is incredibly hard and it's only for the rich, uh, you know, and West Wing and Silver Spoon and stuff like this. And it really is the people that you're listening to. And I actually saw a video of Tony Robbins yesterday and he was interviewed and someone said, um, you know, how do you change your social circle and who you listen to and your beliefs and stuff like that? And he said, well, you know, look around the room. Tell me how much you see of brown. 
And he was like, you know, and now close your eyes and tell me how much you saw that was red in the room. Mm. I influenced you to only think about the things that were brown. So, and obviously the message there is really who you're around, what they talk about. So how does someone proactively evaluate their social circle? Because that's kind of the process, right? Is, is sitting back, if you want to change your life, evaluation, what do you need to do to actually change your social circle and then be proactive in gaining a new one. Because I always talk about it, networking, but people don't really know actually how to change their social network. What would you do? Um, so some of the basics is just showing up. Like every night of the week, literally every night of the week, if you live in a city like, you know, a big city like London or even a smaller city, every night of the week there's going to be some sort of a meetup for entrepreneurs. There's going to be like a tech tech entrepreneur meetup. There's going to be... Um, these these things are advertised online if you search for them. And there'll be one for property investors. There'll be one for um, mindset, personal and professional development. So like me turning up to dancing for the first time and feeling like a complete weird person for going along to this, once you're there, it's the most normal thing. Yeah. So you just kind of turn up and, and see what's there and see and see what's going on, going on meet some people, um, have, have a chat. Just kind of experiment with the idea of getting out of out of your environment um, of typical, uh, you know, typical people. Yeah. To be honest, it's been such a long time since I've had to do that. I'm already <laughs> swimming in all these like, yeah. interesting people. So for me, um, you know, I started by writing books. When I was, I, I, if I take myself right back to the time where before I was doing this, I used to go for a daily walk in a nice neighbourhood. That was my hobby. It's all I could afford. Um, and I would uh, read, you know, always be reading some sort of personal or professional development book between delivering pizzas. Yeah. Um, you know, so I was just kind of getting a mental diet of good stuff and I was like getting myself inspired by just walking around some of the nicer neighborhoods. Yeah. Do you know, it's funny you just say about those little gaps of where you were reading the self-development books, right? So just a little bit about me. I, I came from no money. My parents have never had money. I've not had anyone in my family that's ever been a business owner, entrepreneur. Um, used to be a bit of a wild card, covered in tattoos. And I proactively decided, especially when I had my son, and I had my son, my wife had my son, but when when he came into our lives, it was the that was the changing moment for me. And I changed almost instantly overnight my network. And I started networking in London. And uh, Sam Vanderpump actually said this not too long ago, Paul. Do you remember when he said about getting in rooms that you thought were never possible? Mm. I started getting in rooms. Even I was going, I have no idea how I'm in this room with these people. And I felt a little bit out of my comfort zone because I used to network with people, mm. have this neck tattoo, and I used to wear a turtleneck to cover it up because I felt out of place. And what I realized very quickly, because I was never been around money. Everyone was making fun of the turtleneck. <laughs> well, I, well, probably because I was sweating in the height of summer. But what I realized very quickly is that wealthy people and those who have done very well, they're actually very charitable and they're very helpful and they want to help. And I think that was a little bit of a light bulb moment, mm. which... I think that's an information thing is people don't realize entrepreneurs tend to help other entrepreneurs, to, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a big part. Yeah, I think it's very, look, for starters, it's really normal. You should feel a bit of imposter syndrome and all that sort of stuff. Um, if you were to get onto a motorcycle for the very first time, your brain and your body are saying, hey, wait a second, you've not done this before. Mm. Um, something could go wrong. You better slow down and have a look around and, and just check that everything's fine. So that's like just a normal part of being human, that if you're doing something that feels new, you, you know, you, you, you're just going to feel that. So you just say, thanks, brain. Yeah. Thanks for functioning normally. Yeah. Um, yep. I think we're good right this minute. I'll check yeah. in again in five. Yeah. Uh, and and away you go. But you you know you're meant to feel a bit of that. Your brain loves data. Your brain loves to get data points. And the thing is, if you don't have a lot of data points for something, or if you've got negative data points, then really you're like if you're a scientist and you're saying, hey, I haven't seen this work out very well before. Um, you know, everyone I know has struggled with this. So, you know, all the data points are, are pointing towards this particular uh, outcome. So as a scientist, you're trying to conduct experiments to see if what, you, what, what your current set of data is telling you is correct or not. So if you've got a lot of data points that success is hard, then you might say, oh, well, there you go, success is hard, I've reached that conclusion, that's it. Or you might question the data and you might say, hey, wait a second, maybe I've got that data because of where I grew up, 
maybe I've got that data because of some of the people I've been hanging around with. Maybe I've got something called proximity bias mm. and I've just got a bias towards a set of data because I'm within a proximity of that data. Maybe I need to conduct some more experiments and get more data. So if you can depersonalize it, and stop feeling that this is a personal thing mm. and just say, I'm a scientist and I'm collecting data. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, I'd like to have a nice house and have a go in nice places and do nice things. I want to be successful. I'm going to go and see if I can collect some data of, of uh, anything that makes me uh, identify a different way. Yeah. It's, it's like um, not being emotionally involved. Yeah. I would say that's a big part is taking the, and in fact, that's going to tie on nicely when we talk about socials. I think those that make real progress and what I've noticed from my own journey is not being emotionally involved and being disconnected from what you would class as a bit of a false reality. Even the flip on that. So a guy who I hung around with for many years, uh, much older than me, he was in his 60s um, when he was mentoring me. He had built three multi-billion pound businesses. And I asked him one time, you know, what's what's one thing you believe that most people don't? And he's like, oh, I embrace critics. He goes, I love critics. I love criticism. He said, when we were building the world's first uh, telephone-only bank, everyone said it wouldn't work. And I would say, tell me why you think it wouldn't work. Mm. Oh, because you can never get through. And, it, you know, no one ever picks up the phone to my at my bank. And there's this. And, and they'll pass you through to five or six different people. Yeah. Right? So he was loving these criticisms. And what he would do is he'd say, okay, he'd go back to his team and he'd say, okay, we've got to make sure the phone always gets picked up in three rings. And the person who picks up can handle like 80 or 90% of things that people want. And they, they never have to pass you to somebody else. We've got to build the system based yeah. upon the critics. So he was super excited. He, he used to call criticism free consulting. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah. And he'd say, oh, amazing. We've got some criticism today. That's one McKinsey consultant we don't need. Yeah. But that, do you know, it's so funny you say that. What do we always do, Paul, after an event? We always ask people, ask everyone, what could we have improved on? And the last event which you spoke at, for for for, for us, it went so slick. We were set up early. Mm -hmm. You know, it was everything went really well because we have listened every single event. And it's funny you say about the three-second pickup. Uh, I went to Mark Wright's office, offices um, in Moorgate and he got locked out when he came down to get me. And he said, here we go, we'll do a test. Their men are pick up within three rings to see if they buzz us in, and they picked up within three rings. Nice. <laughs> and it's funny you say that because it really works. And mm. I think if you're again not even just within business, but if you are a person that is open minded, you're willing to learn, listen, adapt, pivot, not uh, you know be emotionally hurt by criticism. I find that you can. Those are the types of people that you can really progress in your life again whether it's personally or professionally and i feel like sometimes you're in a bit of a world where it's which we'll come on to a bit of victim well you know it's, it's it's all right for you but it's hard for me you know my life's hard so just on that um what do you feel about the world that we're in at the moment are, do, do we have are we predominantly victim mindset do you see a lot of it as a content creator as well as a business owner do you see that people are creating their own hurdles you know it's, it's really hard for me to answer that question i'm in a bubble Right, so I'm in a bubble of people who are very successful, yeah. and uh, like the the truth is, I don't spend a lot of time with people who've got a victim mindset. Mm -hmm. um, I, I last week I spent time with an amazing woman who uh, her son was born with this really rare, difficult condition where he didn't have parts of his intestines were missing, and um, really like they gave him very short life expectancy, and um, her husband left. And basically she was a single mother with this really profoundly, like they're in hospital for nine months, all this mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And through that time she said, uh, I'm going to uh, use this time that I'm sitting around the hospital to launch a business. I need to pay for myself. Anyway, she's in the top 1% of earners uh, as a single mum with a disabled child. Um, and, you know, she she's just and, – and she also hasn't – she hasn't been like she hasn't particularly like hustled and grinded and all that sort of stuff. She had a background as a singer. She does voice coaching. Um, she does um, some work with uh, with people who have to give public speeches about fear of public speaking. She makes uh, between one hundred and two hundred thousand a year. Yeah. Um, but she just basically said, "Well, no one's gonna come along and save me. I, I'm gonna be the one who has to save myself." Yeah. I, I tend to hang around with people like that. I mean, I've I've got. Friend of mine who's a quadruple amputee went out clubbing one night, um, felt sick, got a fever, um, passed out, um, uh, woke up in a hospital, smelt a really weird smell, 
Uh, and when he woke up, all four all four limbs had been amputated. Mm. Um, he had um, he'd had uh, meningococcal or whatever it was, and they basically had to do an emergency amputation on him. Um, anyway, he just said, you know, I I decided within a moment that this is either going to be the worst thing in my life or the best thing in my life. Mm. And the guy has a unbelievable clinic chain uh, where it's a chain of clinics um, where they teach amputees how to uh, work. People fly in from all over the world to to go and spend time on campus, on site with him at his, his chains of clinics. Um, but he, you know, he said, I look at my brothers who all have all four, you know, limbs and they're working shitty corporate jobs. Yeah. I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, you know, super successful. I've written an amazing book. Yeah. He goes, none of that would have happened if I had have kept my limbs. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's funny too. He's yeah. Like, you know, people give an arm and a leg to live like me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's really funny? If you take that back, what does that stem from? The people that he's around, the social circle, yeah. the, the purpose in life. I think with the thing uh, where I create a lot of content, not, not in a million years would I be able to keep up with all the comments. But what you do see when you have a flick through is that you see a lot of, well, it's all right for you. Or it's, it's really tough for me. I'm a single parent and stuff like this. And I think, well, really, um, and I've done a few PDFs on it actually to break down denial versus the truth is that there is a there is a reality behind people don't prioritize things in the right order. When people say they don't have time, mm. well, we can look we can look into that, can't we? Where yeah. they spend their time. In fairness, we don't have any schooling system that teaches you a, a, a path to do this. So I can imagine that a lot of people just imagine that it's just an insanely hard journey to start a business or any of that sort of yeah. stuff. There's there's a few things that you have to learn and it's not like it's not about self-belief or any of that sort of stuff. There's just stuff you need to learn. So like for example, throughout all of human history, there was no such thing of a, as a lifestyle business. Mm -hmm. So if you were to have a business right up until let's say let's say 2005 or 2010, but like if you go too far back the idea of setting up and starting a business meant that it was probably going to be a local business with very high setup costs. So take something like a fish and chip shop or a news agency or a bookstore or any of those things, butcher baker, candlestick maker, you're going to have very high setup costs. You're going to have a very small local market. It's going to be hyper competitive. Uh, and so it's going to be geographically limited. It's going to be... Um, you know, you know, a difficult business, you have to be on site and there's going to be a lot of costs to set the thing up. So of course there's baggage around setting up a business because that's been hundreds of years in the making that people have that mindset and it's been true. But if you go past 2010, now we have the ability to set up a business that's not geographically limited, can find customers anywhere in the world, um, can leverage digital assets. You know, you're in a position right now that Coca-Cola would have dreamed of being in in 1970 or 1980. Like the ability to put out a message that goes to the world, the ability to record a video uh, on a high quality camera and have that go out. So I think it's fairly normal that a lot of people just haven't caught up with where we're at or a lot of attitudes and beliefs haven't caught up to the reality. And and it's so recent that you, yeah. you really can have, you know, a team of a few people doing really well, having fun, making money, low setup costs. Um, yeah. Most people have got all the things that they need lying around the house, like a phone and a laptop and an internet connection and all that sort of stuff. So <clears throat> I don't blame people for having uh, resistance or reticence in you know, unless they've had someone explain some of those updates to them. Yeah. Um, it's very easy to be stuck in a, in a belief that was totally true not that long ago. Yeah. So obviously the day and age that we're in now, like you said, low costs, low mm -hmm. startup. Uh, I liked, I think it was one of your videos where, you know, you were talking about the reality behind over the next 10 years, you're probably going to see a lot of companies do a hundred million plus with like a 10 man team, which I totally believe and can see. How does, how does one actually go about really starting in business now? Because the thing is business has been so mitigated its risk because obviously being able to be built alongside a full-time job, which is what I did in the beginning. I, I built that alongside my full-time job. For you, what, what do you see the process for someone who's perhaps sitting on the fence thinking, well, I work full-time, got a young family, normal scenario, not maybe limited on time or they don't know where to find the time. There are, I think the biggest hurdle, there are a lot of options, aren't there? There are, there are a lot of things that have got marketing and ads backed behind them, uh, Amazon FBA, drop mm. shipping, all these kind of things. Where does someone, in your opinion, start to figure out if business is for them and how? 
My preference would always be that you start by working for an entrepreneur first for a year or two and you actually get behind the curtain and see how it actually operates. So I did two years working for an entrepreneur. Um, I was part of a fast growth startup and we went from zero to six million and um, we hired 60 people and uh, you know I experienced all of that in two years. So it's like anything you do an apprenticeship. You know, if you're uh, a doctor, you've you, you first you're a junior doctor working around more people, more experienced people. You know, if you're in a trade, you do an apprenticeship. So you spend time with someone who's more experienced. So the first thing is, let, let's say you've got a corporate job, um, or you've got a job where you're working somewhere that's not particularly inspiring. There's no y- your first goal is to just switch jobs um, and just work in a company that's fairly small. When I say fairly small, ideally less than, say, 10 or 15 people. Because if you're in a company that's less than 10 or 15 people, you get to see how sales get made, you get to see how money gets managed, you get to see how team meetings happen, you get to see who's on the team. Um, So behind the glossy curtain that you might have seen on Instagram, you'll see the reality of what actually happens week to week. So that would be step one, right? So jumping from I'm totally uninspired and don't know what to do to I'm going to go start a business is probably a recipe for disaster, um, or it's probably not a recipe for success. Uh, some of the wealthiest, wealthiest, like crazy wealthiest people I know, they all share the same story of working under the wing of someone who was crazy successful. Yeah. Um, so they had the experience of working for Larry Ellison, and then they went and started a multi-billion-dollar business themselves. But they were very close to the action, and they replicated. They did an apprenticeship of some sort. So if you've not done that, then that's a, a really important and great place to start. Um, and then when you feel ready, uh, you you want to adopt the first thing to do is adopt a scientist's mindset. So you're going to conduct experiments and you're going to try and make sure that those experiments are really fast and really cheap. So, for example, you might launch a waiting list um, for, for an idea. So let's say you've got an idea. Oh, I might write a book. Launch a waiting list. See how many people join the waiting list for the Oh, I might become a fitness trainer. Put up a little landing page and say I'm um, I'm becoming a fitness. I'm, I'm exploring becoming a fitness trainer. I'd love it if you could complete a survey and join my waiting list. Um, you know, or, or complete a survey. Yeah. Right. So you know, you, I'm going to go out. If I can get 150 people to do a survey, well, you know what? I might be able to get 12 clients. Um, so you want to adopt a, a scientist's mind of fast, cheap experiments to give me data. Yeah. Right. Um, one of my beliefs is that businesses start with lead generation. So everything's downstream from lead generation. So essentially, if you can't generate leads for something, then you're probably not going to generate sales for that thing. So start with fast, cheap lead generation to test your idea. So you might say, um, oh, I'm going to be landscape gardener. Rather than buying all of the landscape gardening stuff for 15, 20, 30,000 pounds, mm. you just simply go knocking on doors and say, um, we are in the area doing some landscape gardening. Um, We don't have any availability in the next few weeks, but uh, next month or in a month or two, we've actually got availability um, and we're just seeing if anyone wants to pre-register or pre-book that you'd be interested in having landscape gardening and that you'd want to have a first meeting about what landscaping you might want. So you've bought no equipment and you're just simply testing the market. You know, you're testing your concept out. This is uh, this is what I love about socials is that you go back 20 years. We didn't have the ability to put a message out there, test the market, mm. to, to get like you, as you call them indicators to build a waiting list. And hearing you talk about it, I mean, we've adopted a lot from what you've said. You know, we 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 really have in our joint and our other businesses. And it seems so simplistic that you wouldn't start a business unless you know you have a market for it. And that's what I really love. And what I suppose I try to talk about as well is trying to remind people that whilst you're working a full-time job, you can be putting out content to understand if there's a market. So with social leverage Mm. and you know, I don't like the word social media because it's your it's your window shop, really, mm-hmm. isn't it? The, the power of social media. We've done two full events on it. We we use it every single day. What does it do for you? Like, how do you see social media? Because it's still so early. Like, how this can really propel businesses on the front end and the back end. Mm. So, for all of human history, we've been connected to people through geography. So we're we're likely to be friends with someone because we grew up in the same neighborhoods. We're likely to buy from a company because that company's down the road. 
um, you know, why did I buy from that bookstore? Because it's the closest bookstore. Why did I buy from that clothing store? Because it's the closest clothing store. So geography played this massive role in our lives. And social media did this weird thing where it said, actually, we're not going to connect on geography anymore. We're going to connect on values and we're going to connect on shared interests. Um, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world, we can do that. So let's say you're into some really weird thing like you, let's say you do this where you buy fruit and you collect the fruit stickers and you put them in a little album and you're just very passionately excited about fruit sticker collecting. Well, it turns out there's a group on Facebook called the Fruit Sticker Collectors Society <laughs> and there's literally hundreds of people who do this thing. Um, so all of these weirdest people, they, they thought they were the only person who did this and they thought they had this dirty little secret of collecting <laughs> fruit stickers. And then they go on social media and it's like, shit, there's other fruit sticker collectors. How incredible is that? <laughs> right? So even like let's say it's a one in a million thing to do. Well, that means there's going to be 300 of them in the USA. There's going to be another 500 across Europe. It's like there's 800 fruit sticker collectors out there. So Social media does this weird thing of just closing off the geog geographical borders, allowing people to find each other. And that creates a business opportunity that you can do something called a micro niche or a niche business. So you can find things that very small numbers of people geographically are interested in, but globally there's plenty of them. Yeah. So I, I, lo I love all that. that. That's the thing. It really has opened the doors. And I suppose, again, there's this lack of belief, I think. And what I really want to remind people is that social media, if you are highly value driven, I think that's the other thing is, do you see there is a big difference between people who tend to do really well on socials to build a business? There is, uh, I call it like the vanity metric, you know, just going for those likes. Whereas if you're delivering information educational stuff you're trying to solve a problem mm. uh you can normally build a business off the back of that i think there's this whole well i'm on socials but i i haven't monetized or i'm not growing and i think you've really got to work out what what niche you're mm. in are you in information or vanity um so it works really well if you know what business you're in so the people who do well on social media, they understand where it fits in a broader strategy. So as I said, everything's downstream from lead generation. It doesn't really matter if you've got a massive, let's say you've got millions of followers, but they follow you because you post uh, silly quotes or something like that or, or little jokes. Like, okay, you might have 3 million people who follow your jokes, but you're not, you don't have a business model uh, attached to that. So therefore... Okay, no like, fine, like, that's great. And there are certain accounts like that, you know, they post pictures of fancy Porsches or something, but they haven't got a business model that's, that does that. If you've got a business model, then you know, okay, I'm building this for a purpose, I'm building this to build a business, then you understand that, that everything's downstream from lead generation. So what happens is you say, well, this is valuable if it generates leads for my business. Um, now, like for me personally, let, let me tell you a story. A couple of years ago, three years ago, we had this idea, three or coming up on four years ago, had this idea for a tech company called ScoreApp. And essentially what I wanted to do is get people to start learning about this scorecard marketing concept we'd come up with and how to create quizzes and assessments. So I jump on this thing called Clubhouse that was having its moment um, and I start running daily workshops on this and inviting people to register for a, longer workshop or invite people to try my, my software, which is lead generation. And that got like thousands of people to do that. Um, and then, you know, I, I already had eight successful companies or whatever it was at the time, maybe seven or something like that. I'm always buying and selling businesses. I had, you know, probably had 50 to 100 employees at the time. But it, on evenings and weekends, because I was starting something new, I would get my social media accounts and I just message people, cut paste, um, hey, I'm launching a new business, thought you might be interested, it's all about this, um, little description. Uh, I'm gonna run a little workshop on Zoom um, to explain what we're up to and why it's really powerful. If you wanna come and join, here's the link. Um, and I probably sent that to 3,000 people, uh, just messaging people randomly. And that got the first several hundreds people to come through. And that got us to our first 20 to 30,000 a month worth of recurring revenue. So then we had 20, 30,000 a month worth of revenue coming in, and then we could get investment because we got proof of concept. But like, you know, we, we, you know, I did it with a purpose. I did it with a purpose to generate 
you know, uh, the, the liftoff of a new business. Yeah. This podcast was sponsored by the Employment Breakout Program, How to Fire Your Boss and Replace Your Income. If you want a life of purpose, one with time freedom and financial stability, head to the description below where you can join a free introduction webinar to learn how business could change your life. So would you say when building a business, right, and a brand, there's, there's two different things. You, you've got the business, the core business, mm. and then you've got the brand, which is you as the individual. Mm. Um, I'm listening to a book at the moment called uh, Built, Build to Sell. Mm. Now, do you think there's importance behind, if you're going into business, What's do you think it's important to have the exit plan in place? Um, I know a lot of people really focus on building a brand, but do you think it's also important to have its own sort of entity in its business so that you could sell it because you don't want the business attached too much to the brand? What's your views on business versus brand and exiting? I think it's important to reverse engineer the future. So reverse engineering the future is picking a, a ideal snapshot of what you want in the future and then reverse engineering it and saying, okay, so one outcome is to sell the company. Um, another outcome could be that you want a lifestyle business that just provides a good income with more fun, freedom and flexibility than you currently have. Um, it's totally fine. So if you're a property developer and you've got a block of land, you need to know what are, what are we building? So you have what's called a model, um, an, an end state model, a, a future state model. So the future state model could be that you're building a house that someone's gonna live in, maybe you're gonna live in it, maybe it's your dream home. Uh, or it might be that you're building a block of apartments and it's gonna be seven stories tall and it's gonna have this many people who live there and this many rooms and it's got car parking. So you literally end up with either drawings or a fit or an actual physical little tiny model. Um, and it's that end state that you're actually trying to reverse engineer. If you're trying to rob a bank, you have a future state end state of like, okay, we imagine ourselves driving off across the border and getting on a plane and blah, blah, blah. So you actually have an end state goal that you're that you're trying to reverse engineer and you have to work backwards through all of the things that would prevent that end state from happening. So for example, um, I've sold several companies for a lot of money. They've, they've been businesses that have massively benefited from my brand. It's never been something that's held us back. It's always been a, a, a total positive. My brand builds the business in the first place. We end up with uh, recurring revenues. We end up with a highly talented team. We end up with proprietary assets of the business. And all three of those things are what people want to buy. So we sell the company for millions. Yeah. Um, and also some of the businesses that I've sold, they've asked me to do a year where I'm still a brand ambassador for that business and I'm getting paid twice. Right. So I'm getting paid to sell the business and I'm getting paid a massive day rate to do a day of filming per month to help support that business. Right. So scaling a business, okay. So if someone's sitting here thinking, right, uh, and look, we're, we're one of them as well, but if you're thinking on scaling a business as quick as possible, for example, uh, whatever model that might be, what are some of the key core steps in scaling a business to getting it to a high valuation, getting it, you know, taking a business from nothing? <laughs> So if we want to talk valuation, valuation is those three things that I meant. So we start with the end in mind. Three things that I mentioned is recurring revenue because CFOs want to be able to forecast forward and they want to be able to have a crystal ball and they, they don't like complex business models and they don't like business models that deliberately break up with customers. So when you sell a package or a one-off sale, essentially that business model by design is breaking up with a customer. So essentially you're selling something that comes to an end and therefore... Uh, you're guaranteed to lose that customer once you've delivered the value. CFOs, uh, chief financial officers, they love business models that never break up with a customer. That's called recurring revenue. It means there's an ongoing value delivery. And they like that because if they keep tweaking and keep optimizing, a typical customer might stay for 15 months, then 18 months, then 22 months, then 36 months. So if they can figure out how to continue just a few little tweaks, they can extend the lifetime value of the customer much further. So therefore, um, their spreadsheet shows better numbers. So a recurring revenue model is number one. Recurring revenue comes off the back of a proprietary asset. So a proprietary asset is a technology platform or it could be a property or it could be um, that you have some intellectual property. It could be that you, uh, you it's something special that your business does um, that's hard to replicate. Yeah. And the, the like, if I can just easily copy what you do, I'm not gonna sell, I'm not gonna yeah. buy your business, I'll copy your business. Um, so we want a proprietary asset, something that's hard to copy. 
Uh, and then the final thing that acquirers want, if you want to sell a business for millions, is they want a good team. Yeah. In a perfect world, they want 35 or more people, 30 people or more. Um, ideally, 10 or more, and very rarely less than 10. So, uh, that, because if the founder leaves uh, and everyone's really loyal to the founder, yeah, then the whole thing's going to everyone's yeah. going to leave and go do something else. Once you get to about thirty people, it's way less founder dependent. So if we're if we're reverse engineering a multi million or tens of millions exits, those are your big three: recurring revenue, proprietary asset, and a team of thirty people. Yeah. So you got to work backwards from that. Yeah. So let's go. Do you want me to take you through a few of the steps? Let's do it. Yeah. yeah let's sure. Do it. So the first few steps are called chaos: concept, audience, offer, sales. So we've got to have good, solid concepts, something special, something unique, something when people hear it, they go, I like that. So you should always test multiple concepts. Um, don't be afraid to have 10 ideas that you're testing. Is that for the diversification, just to jump in? Is that to keep the company diversified, having these sort oh, of different- Oh, no, no. I'm saying at the very early stages- Got you, you, you right. Want to, you, might, you might be in love with a particular concept, yeah. but slightly adjacent could be like slight tweak on that concept could be like way more exciting to the market. Gotcha. So it's worth trying to figure out if there's a few different ways we could gist this concept. So a good concept has a good market size. It's something you're passionate about. Normally you've got a background or an origin story that lines up with it. Um, you've got a clear vision for the future. People get excited about that vision. Um, you've identified some problem that exists and people want that problem solved and they're willing to pay for it. So that's a good concept. Then you test audience. Can we get people to generate, can we generate leads, right? An audience could be a waiting list, could be that people fill in a survey or an assessment, could be that people sign a pre-registration, uh, could be that they join a discussion group about that topic. Um, they, they might sign up to come to events. So any of those things are audience builders. Yeah. Um, or they might sign up to a social media account that's very focused on that thing that the, by virtue of them signing up to that social media account, they're saying, yeah, I'm interested in whatever it is you're talking about. So that's the, the, the next one's audience building. Can you build an audience? We haven't done any supply side yet. It's just demand generation at the beginning, right? Yeah. So concept and audience. Then we test the offer. What are people willing to pay? Are they willing to pay 50 a month, 100 a month, 10 a month? Um, are they willing to pay a thousand or two thousand for a package, let's say? Um, or uh, you know, so we want to test price points, and we want to find out what's in the package. So um, great companies sell packages; they don't sell time or services; they sell packages. So a Porsche 911 is a package. Two and a half thousand suppliers put stuff into a car, and then it looks like one thing called a Porsche 911, and then people buy that Porsche 911, but it, actually it's a package. It's like it includes a you know a music system and it includes brakes and shocker and tires, all of that supplied by other companies. So you construct a package of things that everyone goes, oh, I love that. You put it on a brochure or a slide deck or a landing page and see whether people actually want that at that price. And you want to do a bit of testing to see what price they're willing to pay. It's often the case that your psychological baggage might massively diminish the price. People were willing to pay three grand. You just charge fifteen hundred because fifteen hundred felt right to you. Mm. But fifteen hundred might feel right to you because of your situation, not their situation. Um, in fact, higher end buyers won't trust. It. They don't trust cheap. So I think that's one thing where people uh, sometimes get a little bit confused. What do I charge? And sometimes I think there's that self-doubt of, do I charge what I believe it's worth or what the market- You keep coming back to things like self-doubt and belief. Honestly, no one cares how you feel. Like I could be, I could be riddled with self-doubt and belief. If I'm providing value, no one cares. Yeah. Um, so would you always go with market? So if anyone's- Yeah. yeah. The market, market, market's selfish. Yeah. Only cares about itself. I could have bulletproof confidence, right? I could yeah. burst into every room with massive amounts of confidence. If I'm not delivering value to the market, they don't care that I've got confidence. They'll find confidence annoying. Yeah. Right? They'll sit there and go, this guy's an idiot. Yeah. Um, so you, you don't necessarily, it doesn't really matter whether you feel good or bad or any of that sort of stuff. That's your own business. Yeah. That's your, talk, talk to a therapist about yeah. that. But you know the market is only interested. Are you providing great value? Yeah. F are you solving a problem to them? Largely, that comes down to who you're serving. So, I could do the exact same thing. Let's say my, my friend who does public speaker training. So, an executive who has to speak in front of an audience of two thousand shareholders, investors, employees, 
media is going to find public speaker training a lot more valuable than someone who has to go in front of their local little, you know, church or group <laughs> or something like that. So the exact same thing could be very valuable to one person, not so valuable to another person. Yeah. So largely the value of what you of what you're doing is really down to the buyer. A Ferrari, for example, is for for a billionaire, it's a cheap car, it's a toy, it's like, oh yeah, why wouldn't I? Might as well. Um, so it's not it's not expensive, it's it's just something fun. And it's not like the biggest thing in their world. It's like, you know, it's 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 just, oh well, you know, I can, I will, why not? Yeah. Um but if you're selling to a uh, prestige auto rental business, it's capex it has to make sense financially for them to rent it out because they're thinking about it very differently. Um, and for a aspiring entrepreneur who's just starting out, it's a dream. Mm. You know, it's like a more money than they've ever seen. So it really comes down to who you're selling to yeah. as to whether it's good value or not. So do you think the focus for people when, if someone was starting a business, mm. you know, and they're working that um, alongside a full-time job, I think a lot of people would naturally say in the beginning, it's it's a drive of money, you know, to bring in revenue. That's most people's mm. drive right in the beginning. When building a business, going through the highs and lows, because I think most people who have, have certainly put, you know, a lot of effort into business and started mm. a business would would agree that there's a lot of lows, but the highs tend to outweigh the lows. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of up and down. Uh, mindset wise to run a business, mm. I think is important to talk about. It's because um, in the beginning, you, you know, if you're running, like we were talking about, mm. you can run these big businesses with a small man team. You've got to be the CEO, the cleaner, the salesperson in the beginning. How, how important really is it for your mindset to shift uh in starting these businesses and everything that comes mm. with it, because it's a big part. So, a couple of things in the in the short term interactions, no one cares, right? You can have a terrible mindset. If you're doing the right things, it'll work, right? So, in the long term, mindset matters a lot. Um, I have a very simple framework for mindset, which is that the brain is actually divided into three layers. Um, and you've all experienced, everyone will experience these three layers. So at the base layer, you've got the reptile mode. Reptile mode, fight, flight, freeze, freak out, throw tantrums. Everything is about something bad is happening to me and I need that thing to stop. All right. So that is reptile mode. Um, so if you're being attacked, something bad's happening to me, I need that to stop. If a bear comes out from the wilderness, something bad's happening, I need that thing to stop, I'm going to run. Um, so we have that built in as a system that when something bad happens, we go into reptile mode, we fight it, we run, right? We freeze, right? So all of that sort of stuff. And that's a very short-term system. And if you run your life or your business from the reptile mode, you spiral out of control real fast because um, it only can make short-term. It can do very short-term thinking. There's no strategy in that part of the brain. There's no empathy. There's no like understanding what the other person might want or need, none of that. So you're just trying to do that. now. If you, it's also a stupid part of the brain, like it's actually mathematically about 15 IQ points lower than your normal baseline. So it's easily fooled into things like passive income, quick wins, I'm gonna make a million really quickly, I'm gonna have a passive income, never have to work again. Um, I'm gonna earn a quick amount of money really fast. I'm gonna lose weight really fast. I'm gonna attract that amazing superstar really fast. Right, so the reptile is stupid. It, it'll it'll fall for all those trickery. So if I can get you into reptile mode, I can trick you. Um, so you want to stay out of reptile mode for many reasons. Autopilot is your habits. So that's the next layer, and it's just basically habits. If you happen to have phenomenal habits, then autopilot's great because it'll just lift you up. Mm. Most people don't. So like if you happen to be in the habit of going to the gym and working out really hard three, four times a, a week, you're probably going to be really fit. Um, if you happen to be in the habit of um, making lots of sales calls uh, for the right product, you probably just stick to your habits and you'll make a bunch of money. Um, so your habits just kind of set you on a course and then it depends what course you got set on. So most people I'd say are not set on a particularly uplifting course because most of the habits that work are difficult habits. Um, you know, so it's very easy. You know, some people grew up in the right family and they just instilled from a very young age, 
you know, you're going to save, you're going to invest, you know, you know, buy houses, you're going to do this sort of stuff. And they've got great habits, lucky, you know, lucky thing. But the, the part of the brain that's actually interesting is what would call is the frontal cortex and it's the visionary mind. And the visionary mind is about reverse engineer the future. So it's about pick something that's different. Um, and how do we have an impact on life? How do we change things? How do we uh, get back in control and get in the driver's seat for, towards something we want? So this is when you've ever had a moment where you've, let's say you're calm, maybe you've been for a run or you've been breathing, um, you've gotten off the phone, you might have been for a walk in the forest or something, your brain starts to just kind of relax a little bit and you almost drift where you've got a higher level perspective. So you don't, you're not in your body you can almost see through time, you can see through space, um, you can al almost like get into the shoes of somebody else. If you're talking to someone else, you can say, wait a second, I know where that person's coming from. They're, they're worried because of this that happened to them. You can, or, oh, I know what that person wants. They want this solution. And if I build that for them, they'd happily pay for it. I can really understand that. So it's the visionary part of the brain that plays chess, right? It understands strategy. It understands what your side of the board must look like and what moves you would probably make. Um, it's the part of the brain that loves, that has love, um, that it has like a bigger, broader sense of love for the world or, or, or for others. Uh, compassion, empathy, um, creativity, uh, you know, vision, inspiration, all of that happens there. So businesses are built from that part of the brain. Mm. And you've, you know, when we talk about mindset, first thing is just recognize what setting are you on? Are you a reptile, autopilot, or um, or visionary? That's really, the, that's the whole trick. Yeah. The whole trick is that. Yeah. Right? It's quite simple, really, isn't it? It comes pre-installed. Yeah. And I, I would totally agree. And I think really that question stems from, there are, I suppose, a lot of people that believe that you need a huge amount of motivation. I, I'm not, a, I'm not a massive fan of motivation. I, I don't, I think that's very short term in the moment. You mm. see something you like, gives you a bit of a buzz, right? Dopamine hit, something like that. But habits, I totally back you on that, you know. And discipline, habits, and discipline. When you instill those over a long period of time, and it's second nature. So with habits, you tend to have to go visionary, figure out what you want, and then think, well, what would be the weekly habits that would yeah. get me there? And then you have to kind of go through a bit of a process to install those habits and get into those habits. But the trick is you've got to go visionary and then install stuff into the autopilot so that like a pilot has to take off, program the computer, we're going to New York, and then now the computer will do the thing. Yeah. Most people's computer has not been programmed to be on autopilot towards some phenomenal result. Yeah. So you've got to go visionary first and then start examining reverse, the habits. Reverse engineer. I you know, with um, with socials, right, uh, we all have access to it. You have a lot of free resources. So when it comes to having access to information, which you can use to educate yourself, the trick is to apply, right? I think, you know, we can all learn, but there's that real defining moment of hoarding information, being like a librarian, or mm. you apply what you learn, right? When it comes to, if we were to take Daniel back, let's, let's go back 15 years, right? Uh, let's say you've got access to socials and everything like that. How would you really start, right? If someone's listening to this, how would you really start from the beginning? I'm talking everything from uh, the visionary side of it, the plan. Mm. How would you sort of, I suppose, navigate the crazy world of all the business ideas? Kind of what would your what would your step by step process as be? I say, as I say, concept audience offer sales. So I'm going to come up with several concepts and test them. I'm then gonna, once I pick one, I'm gonna build an audience, see if I can build an audience and see how hard it is to build an audience. Then I'm gonna present them with an offer. And then I'm gonna sit down one-to-one -one and see if I can make sales. And that's gonna be my start. And let me jump in on the audience then. So yeah. on the audience, yeah. because I just wanna, I wanna dive into it a little bit more. Cause when we talk about audience, there'll be some people going, but what do you mean by audience? So I know exactly what that is, just socials. People who pay attention. Yeah. So an audience for a concert are the people who are at the concert paying attention to the concert. They're, that's the audience. They're, they're actually energetically paying attention to yeah. the person on, on, on the stage playing music. So an audience is can you get people's attention um, as the first thing? Can you get people to signal that they're paying attention? On social media, sometimes people are paying attention, but you don't know. So the way that we know someone's paying attention is they fill in some sort of a form, they reveal themselves as paying attention. They might comment, they might like something, they might send you a DM, um, which means that they're only doing that because they've seen you, they've, yeah. they've seen what you've had to say. So you might do a post on LinkedIn and it says, 
Um, I'm launching a new business. We're going to help podcasters to set up a studio. Um, if you're interested in having a studio and podcasting, blah, 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 send me a DM. The call and, to action. Yeah, and you might get two or three people reveal themselves and say, hey, I saw your post and I'm interested in that. Here's, here's a DM. So essentially you're testing to see do you have the ability to build an audience. The reason you're doing that is because sales is a lot harder than audience building. Um, on average you might make one sale for every 10 people who signal interest. Mm. So if you can't get lots of people signaling interest, you're certainly not going to get lots of people buying from you. Yeah. So a signal of interest is much easier than a sale. Yeah. Um, so Glastonbury Music Festival, they don't sell tickets. There's only 30 minutes of the year that where they sell tickets. The rest of the year is getting people to signal that they're interested in tickets. Getting that waiting list up. They, they build the pre-reg list. So they're basically, you pre-register for tickets and you fill in the form. So they're audience building, audience building, audience building, audience building. And these are all people who want the tickets and then they release the tickets and that's where they make their sales. Yeah. Um, but they know that if they just simply try and sell tickets, it won't work. So they have to audience build first. Because that audience building, I think when people hear that, that audience building and getting your face out there, uh, Alex Mosey did a brilliant video where he was talking about there was substantial growth where he sat down with his team and he was pumping out something like 80 pieces of content a week, but then they ramped up to like 200 mm. and it was being in the face so much more of potential clients who you, talk, who, mm. who you said, and it's totally true, people tend to watch a lot more now before they commit to something of like a, a yeah. purchase. Bear in mind, Alex Hamozzi knows what his business model is. Yeah. So what doesn't work is being completely clueless. And talking about and, all kinds. And just trying to put out 200 pieces of content, right? So like, because that's going to cost a ton of money and time and effort and energy. Where's it leading? So if you just put rain on a desert, right? Okay, great. You rained on the desert, but nothing's going to grow. Nothing's nothing's there. You haven't you haven't got anything to, to do with that. Um, second thing is Alex Homozi has what's he has the ability to get past people's first filter. First filter is why the hell should I even listen to you in the first place? So he starts every video with I'm under 30 or whatever it is. I've built a hundred million dollar business and I've got nothing to sell you. And he, he opened every video with, the hook. with that That's hook and people are like, wow, this guy's under 30, he's built a hundred million dollar business and he's not trying to sell me anything okay, I'll listen to what you have to say. Most people don't have any ability to get people's attention, right? Because if I, if if you take an, an Alex Hamozzi script and you take that first bit away and you get hundreds of people mm. to say the exact same words that Alex Hamozzi says, but there's no first filter, then no one's going to listen to that. And you yeah. can put 200 pieces of content online, but no one's going to do that. He understands. He has a high degree of empathy. And his empathy says... People are skeptical and time poor. Why the hell would they listen to me? Let me start with, I'm Alex Hamozzi. I've done this thing that's huge. No one's done it before. No one's doing that. And I'm not trying Proof to say Boom. So he just handles objections straight up. Yeah. Out the gun. I think that's the thing, isn't it? With socials being that, that, I, I, that window shop, as I called it, mm. uh, people struggle to get the attention. So, you know, the lead generation, you know, we can learn to set up funnels organic funnels and stuff like that when it comes to socials and your experience mm. what have you what what have you found that's worked the best for business conversions is it obviously you have to give loads of free value you know i talk about that all the time as well you know you just live to sort of learn and learn to live that you give mm -hmm. loads of free stuff yeah uh, what does work best what works is um Adding value to people's lives, so trying to trying to share stuff that adds value, um, and um, and that gets people interested to know more about what it is you actually do. Um, dominating one platform tends to work at the beginning, so I see people trying to do all things on lots of platforms. I've found that you're almost better off just picking one and just getting good at that one for a little while. Um, and trying to spot if someone if someone's liking posts every day, drop them a DM. You know, hey, uh, thanks so much. I noticed that you liked like three or four posts this week. Appreciate you following along. I'm just getting started on this platform. What is it you're liking about my posts? Um, you know, so um, be some, a bit more proactive yeah. to actually reach out. The other thing that works really, really well, if you possibly can, is to skip the whole process of having to build a following 
and just find someone who's already got a following and partner with them. Collaborate. To me, that that's great. Like some of the stuff that I did in the early days is I used to host private dinner party or lunch and I would invite at a nice, really nice restaurant. I'd invite people who had a big following and I'd just say, hey, look, I'm putting together some really interesting people, people who've got big followings in the industry, come along to my lunch, I'm hosting. And by virtue of the fact that I'm hosting at a nice restaurant, private yeah. dining, now people might hear that and they go, oh, my goodness, private dining at a nice restaurant. It's like 50 pounds a head yeah. for lunch, right? So they'll give you a private room. If you, if you, like, if you bring around, almost all fancy restaurants have a private dining room. And if it's not being used and you said, hey, look, you know, we do a 50 pound, we've got a budget for 50 pounds a head. We're going to have 12 people at dinner, at lunch. Um, you know, are you willing to take the booking? Some will say no, some will say yes, but it's like you can have 12 people for 600 quid. Yeah. Now those 12 people might have a combined three or four million followers. Yeah. So in my mind, we don't do enough of that in the UK. I had this conversation not too long ago. And depends which circles. Yeah. Well, it, very, it happens very, every day in Mayfair. Very true. Very true. But I, but I think more to the masses, I think people are a little... I suppose on the on the climb, yeah. people are a little bit more reserved, and I find that a shame because I know in the US they're a lot more proactive. You know, someone who's got ten k followers could collaborate with someone who's got five mil, and there's you know there's a little bit more. I don't yeah. know. I find on the way up, people are a little bit more protective over here. Well, you should if if someone's got millions of followers, they're getting 10, 15, 20 inbound inquiries a day of people who want to collaborate with them. Yeah, it's the cut through of doing something a little bit different. Y you know, if you're on the make, you can't expect someone to help you. Mm. Right, especially someone who's already made it, they're being approached hundreds of times a month. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Like you're not special for sending an email that. Like if you're sending them saying, oh, "I love your stuff and I follow your stuff and I really yeah. love that. I'd really love it if we could do something together." Honestly, they've had loads of them. Like every day. Yeah, and it's like it's nice. That's great. But every day, every day, it's hundreds of those messages. Yeah. Or not hundreds a day, but hundreds a month. Yeah. Um, and for millions of followers, it is hundreds a day. So they become numb to that sort of thing. So, you know, for, for example, I'll give you a, give an example. I was just in Dubai. I, I'm not in Dubai regularly, but um, I looked through my network and um, it turns out, I know this will sound pretty wanky, but <laughs> someone, someone I know who has 100, uh, someone I know has a 100-foot yacht in Dubai. So I say, my, say to my friend, um, hey, I'd really like to put some of the top influencers in Dubai on the 100-foot boat. They're, they'll have a combined millions and millions of followers. Can I borrow your boat for the evening? And we're going to do burgers on the boat and uh, I'll buy you uh, a nice meal. I'll, I'll, I'll bring these people to you um, and uh, I'll pay for everything. He said, of course, right, let's do it because the boat's just sitting there empty anyway. So I then reach out to some of the people uh, in Dubai, some I know well, some I don't know at all, and I say, um, I'm putting together a really nice little group of people who are top influencers in Dubai. We're going to have burgers on the boat. It's a beautiful 100-foot yacht, gourmet burgers, um, and we get to hang out and meet each other, and would you like to come along? Um, and I think like everyone said yes, like pretty much, or everyone who could unless they had pre-booked. Apologies, I couldn't make it. By couldn't the way. make it. <laughs> So I end up with like 15, 20 people on the boat and they're all like minimum half a million followers right up to three, four, five million followers. And um, yeah, and I just host that. Um, I bought a really nice gift for for my friend with the boat. Um, it took a, I don't know, a few hours. Now I know that sounds extreme, right? Oh, well, easy if you've got a friend who's got a hundred foot, foot yacht. Well, okay but you can do a version of that in a nice members club or you can do a version of that in a nice restaurant. You can do a version of that by contacting a boat sales company and saying, hey, I'm going to bring a bunch of really influential people. Yeah. Um, would you Would you like to host us? Um, you know, there's plenty of ways you can you can do that. There's plenty of versions of that, by, but by doing something a little bit special, you get cut through. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a book that I read my kids called Stone Soup. And they start with a big empty pot and they put a stone in it and they boil the water and they say to the villagers, hey, we're going to make the most beautiful soup. We just need a little bit of salt. Oh, I've got some salt. Oh, we just need a little bit of carrots. Oh, I've got some carrots. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mm, this would be nice if we just had some chicken stock. I've got that. Right. And Leverage. Then by the time, because they said we're going to do this incredible thing. So you can, when I 
first arrived in London, I knew absolutely no one. I'd never been above the equator. Um, I arrived pretty much with a suitcase and a credit card. And I first two weeks, I spent putting together a dinner party for 28 people, private dining. It cost 1,600 pounds, I think. Um, and I just basically reached out to oh, everyone didn't know me. I reached out to all these people who didn't know me. I said, I've just arrived from Australia. Um, uh, I'm hosting a, a private dinner party. Uh, I'm going to be launching a company. I'm inviting some of the top names in the industry. Um, your name came up. I'd love to send you an invitation as well. Um, and um, and everyone was like, oh, the top names in the industry are going along. Now, the funny thing was, as soon as I got a couple of people who mm. were actually pretty well known. Oh, one has come. Then it's like, yeah, so they all came to see each other. Yeah. I hosted it and coordinated it. Host with the most. Yeah, and I, I was I stood up and invited and, and basically acted like I owned the place. And uh, everyone was like, this is the new kid on t in town, this guy. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> He's, it's and, social leverage. And they all went, just to finish that story, they all wanted to partner with me. Um, I launched a business with 800 people at my launch event. The following six months, we did £4 million worth of sales. Wow. So, and the reason I did £4 million worth of sales is because there was one person in that group who had a massive email list who decided to partner with us. Um, and, and they basically filled everything for six months. I love it. Well, we're we're slowly following behind. You know, we are, we use a lot of these concepts. I mean, one thing we will be doing is we need to buy a dinghy. <laughs> <laughs> and you're invited, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, um, awesome. Well, Daniel, obviously, I can't thank you enough, mate. Um, huge information for myself, Paul, anyone who's watched is, you know, so valuable, but can't thank you enough. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Cheers, mate. Awesome.